Okay, so before I start, a couple of disclaimers. The first is that I have a cold, so my voice is a bit weird, um, but hopefully should still be comprehensible. The second, much more importantly, is that this episode is filled with spoilers. And if you have not yet read Patrick Ness's book A Monster Calls, or seen J.A. Bayona's film of the same name, which is at the cinemas at the moment when this episode is going to be released, um, then please do not listen to this episode. Please go and read the book and then watch the film. And then come back and listen. Because I think the book and the film are both extraordinary and I would hate to ruin it for you um, by giving stuff away before you've uh, seen and read it. Um, if you have seen the book or watched the film, or if you don't care about spoilers, or if you have no intention of reading the book or watching the film regardless of whatever I say, then by all means proceed. And welcome to Stage Brother, a podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo and you're listening to episode 21, A Monster Calls. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar One must go before the other. Let's start there. One must go before the other. It's a strange sentence. It's one of those sentences that I find kind of sticks in my head and doesn't budge. It demands attention, demands something from me. Acknowledgement or response or validation or submission or something. One must go before the other. It's a sentence, a sentiment rather, that underpins um, a lot of Jacques Derrida's ideas about uh, mourning. And he's written about mourning quite a lot. He wrote a a book called Circumfession, which is about the death of his mother. Uh, But the book that I'm going to talk about uh, in this episode is a book called The Work of Mourning, which is a collection of texts that was gathered together that he'd written about people who had died. Um, He was among the last of his generation of French intellectuals to survive. uh, Baudrillard died a couple of years later. Alain Badiou's still alive. But Derrida bore witness to a lot of his friends and colleagues over the course of his life. And... When this happened, he would do what he always did, which was to immediately write stuff down. And he wrote funeral orations, he wrote messages of condolence, he wrote academic papers, and he wrote lectures. And in these texts, he would always consider the departed, and he would speak of the departed and to the departed. And he would explore the problems and and issues around speaking of or for the departed. And in doing so, he produced what he called works of mourning. One must go before the other. Now, it's a very Derridean phrase because it has this double meaning. So on the one hand, one must go before the other. If we are friends, if we share our love for one another, then we always do so under the certain knowledge that one of us will die first. You know, even if we both die at the same time, then we've lived our entire friendship thinking that one of us would die first, so it amounts to the same thing. Death always keeps step with our friendship, and death eventually will describe the ultimate form of our friendship as it describes the ultimate form of all life. At the same time, though, there is another meaning to one must go before the other, which is we must present ourselves to the other in order to open ourselves up to friendship and to love. Because both friendship and love are making the methods of making ourselves vulnerable, of exposing ourselves to scrutiny, to um, affection, to hate as well, which are all kind of bound up in this idea of our relationship with the other. And also, of course... All friendship is bound to this idea of the certainty of loss. Because we know, even as we begin to care, to love, to form attachments and to make connections, that we are furnishing ourselves with the things that will be taken away from us. 
And in fact, we're, more, we're doing more than that. In We are uh, creating bits of ourselves that will also be lost because we build ourselves in relation to the other. We build ourselves in accordance with our friendships. We are, in many respects, a composite of the people that we care about, that we love and who love us. And I remember when I found out that I was going to be a father, um, one of the first thoughts that I had was that I was going to help bring a life into the world that would one day end. I mean, you know, it's just my weird Martian brain, but um, I've stolen that phrase from somewhere. Anyway, um, that this is what I was doing, was I was helping to bring a life into the world, and because of that, I was helping to bring into the world somebody that would die. What did not occur to me, and didn't occur to me for quite a long time, was that I was also helping to bring into the world a life that would have to cope with my death. And it's a strange responsibility, and it's something that you know, is inevitable to, to parenthood. Is it? It's inevitable to, to falling in love or to having friendships or to a, your relationship with your own family, is that you have this particular peculiar responsibility that you are presenting somebody with something that they could lose or will lose if you die before they do. Um, all of this is a preamble, by the way. I'm going to get to talk about monster calls, but... Um, what I, but I want to sort of look at a monster calls through the lens of Derrida's ideas of mourning and of grief, and to try and think of a monster calls as a work of mourning. So I'm going to spend probably a large, the bulk of the episode talking about Derrida and interspersing that with um, Ness's book, and finally at the end talking about Ness's book and um, Bayona's film as a uh, potential work of mourning. So one of the questions that Derrida asks in his texts is, when does mourning begin? Which is, a, in some ways, I suppose, superficially, is quite simple. You know, mourning begins at the point at which you lose a loved one, a loved one dies. But you push a little bit further and you realise, of course, it's not that simple. For starters, when a loved one dies, we are overwhelmed by grief. And grief is not the same thing as mourning. Grief is an intense biological response, which is not rational or methodical, and which serves no kind of healing or palliative purpose. It, it, it consumes rather than anything else. Um, and it can take many forms, and it operates as a kind of a mania. Mourning is rather the process by which we come to terms with, or try to accept, or try to live with, or try to rationalise, or, or try to um, rebuild, or whatever it is, something to do with a, a process of development that happens after grief, or in accordance with grief. Um, and mourning is much more something which can be we think of as having, we work through, that we do. Grief is something that happens to us. Mourning is something that we do. Um, but of course, mourning also doesn't necessarily just happen after grief or with grief. It also happens, it starts to happen before the loved one dies. Because we, even if we've not really uh, consciously thought of it, we have this sense of the potential loss of our loved ones. And we practice and we anticipate and we rehearse the idea of mourning even if it's just through fear, even if it's just through, I don't know what I'm going to do when this person dies, if this person dies. More often than not, we, we become aware of this process if we are around somebody who is dying or who is very sick and we think might be dying. And at that point, we start thinking, okay, how do I prepare for this? But it's at, it's at work in all the friendships we have, all the love that we have. And uh, you, we can see this in a, a speech that Derrida gives at the uh, funeral of uh, Louis Althusser, who's a French philosopher with whom he was friends. And he says, he begins the speech by saying, I knew in advance that I would be unable to speak today, unable, as they say, to find the words. Forgive me then for reading, and for reading not what I believe I should say, does anyone ever know what to say at such times, but just enough to prevent silence from completely taking over, 
a few shreds of what I was able to tear away from the silence within which I, like you, no doubt, might be tempted to take refuge at the moment. So he's he's reading from a script. He's talking about... He starts by apologising for the fact that he's reading from a script rather than speaking aloud. Um, and he starts by saying, I knew in advance. And how do we begin to know? You know, how it's a, it's a paradox, a curious paradox. Most of us don't think over much about the fact of the death of our loved ones, but it, it does come out at particular moments. We do, we are reminded of it. Um, I, I still remember very keenly the, the moment that I first remember, I realised my mother was going to die. Um, I was about seven, I think. I was in my bedroom, which was in an attic, and I, I just had this thought that she was going to die, and I then had to go downstairs and talk to her about this, probably the middle of the night. Um... And I remember her being very good. She didn't sugarcoat it at all. She said, yes, that's true. She was going to die, and so was I, and so was everybody. But that there was a lot of life between now and then. And so she kind of tried to refocus my attention away from the inevitability of death and onto life. Um, and that's... But it does come back to you at, at times. You do think about the fact that your loved ones will die. And that is, in some ways, a process of beginning to mourn, even and before they have gone. There's also something in Derrida's address that's very familiar um, to anybody that's ever read his work. He's talking about the relationship between speech and writing. And he apologises for reading aloud from a written text rather than speaking. Now, the ancient Greeks, uh, particularly Plato, treated writing with huge suspicion because um, they had this. They didn't trust it, the fact that it defers its meaning. Writing can always be moved from one place to another or to another time, and it has a very slippery character which can be read or reread in a variety of different ways. Now, they thought speech was much more direct, and because it only happened in the, in the place and time in which it was uttered, that it therefore had this concrete attachment to the thing that was being spoken about, whereas writing didn't. And Derrida, in his early career, took a lot of pains to demonstrate that all speech, as well as all writing, operates on a principle of deferral, that there is no essential character or quality to any linguistic communication. That, you know, I think he says something like that all speech uh, relies on words that are, are deferred, rolled up, and not there. Um, and this is one of his big uh, kind of projects, was to try to destabilise the idea that speech is somehow better than writing or, or, or less false than writing. Um, but what's touching, I think, is to see him here return to writing, um, even with all of his caveats, even with all of his comprehension um, of the essentially deferred nature of, of, of text, and we will talk about this a bit later on, but still to say, well, this is the only tool that I have to articulate what I want to articulate about my friend who is now dead. Um, because what else can I do? And he, it's, he points out that to talk at a moment of loss is indecent, but he also says that silence is intolerable. So, therefore, we must talk. We must take back these shreds from silence. And in doing so, he says he finds refuge. Um, now, this this taking refuge from silence, this using words in order to try to address the moment of loss, is one aspect of the work of mourning. Um, we work through a process, and we do so by talking, by taking something back from silence. Because I suppose that's what death constitutes. The death of the other indicates their complete and total and ultimate silence. What do you then do in the face of that silence? But there is another meaning to the phrase work of mourning, of course. Um, if we think of it in terms more like a work of art, so a piece or a text, and that's where we start thinking about a monster cause. Now, I read this book about a year ago. Uh, I didn't know what it was. I just found a copy in Waterstones um, that was signed by the author, and it was a children's book. And I actually bought it, um, well, 
No, no, I'll, I'll keep that for another time. Anyway, I got this book. Um, I've never read Patrick Ness before. It's a book for young adults. Um, the edition that I have is beautifully illustrated in charcoal by Siobhan uh, Dowd. And the book concerns a boy called Connor O'Malley, whose mother is very sick, and he's plagued by nightmares. And uh, the book opens as a tree monster comes into his garden at night and threatens him. In the most kind of extraordinary, violent fashion, it comes and smashes the walls of his house and screams at him, and he feels this compost breath all over him. But he isn't scared. And he isn't scared because he says it's not the monster that he was expecting. And he, the reader doesn't know what the monster he was expecting is. We just know that we're faced with a very redoubtable, um, tenacious and brave boy who's the, the protagonist of this play. This play, sorry, this book. I'm so used to talking about theatre. And over the course of the book, the monster returns to him at various junctures and tells him stories. These stories are parables of a sort, but they never quite go where you think they're going to go. They always have slightly skewed endings, or the morals are a bit messed up. Good characters get punished, bad characters don't. Or the good character isn't as good as you think they are. And Connor gets very confused by them. And the, the monster keeps telling him that stories are wild animals. And the monster says that once he's told these three stories, Connor will have to tell the monster his truth, a truth that he does not want to admit. Uh, and the reader understands that Connor is terrified of this truth. Now, interspersed with all of this, Connor's world is sketched out, and it's not a positive world. His mother is very sick, and he is not coping. She's not coping. He's having to spend more time with his grandmother, a woman who has a very neat and orderly house and who doesn't see... His mother is quite an alternative woman, um, has had a very um, non-conventional approach to parenting, but the grandmother has a very conventional approach to parenting. His father has moved away to the United States and now lives with his new wife and their daughter. Um, he's being bullied at school. And Ness doesn't pull any punches. This is very much the world of a child as seen through the eyes of a child. And one, I think probably one, one of the many reasons I want to talk about this was because I read it and saw the film thinking that the angry nine-year-old boy that's still somewhere inside me really would have would have found this text very resonant. Um, and you know, therefore hoping that other nine-year-old boys and girls and so on around the world would find this text resonant as well. Anyway, we'll get to that later. As, as Connor goes through the story, he becomes more and more angry and he systematically destroys everything that he can get his hands on. He breaks his... He rips his grandmother's front room to pieces in a remarkable sequence. And then um, there's a later bit where he's uh, talking to the boy that's been bullying him. And the boy decides that he's going to ignore Connor. And that's the final kind of tipping point for Connor. And he uh, he beats the boy up. And then he's... Uh, I'm going to read from a quote just now, which is where after he's beaten the boy up, he's summoned to uh, the headmistress's office for what he thinks will be punishment. Uh, the headmistress sat back heavily in her chair. School rules dictate immediate exclusion, she said. Connor felt his stomach sink, felt his whole body droop under a ton of extra weight. But then he realised that it was drooping because the weight had been removed. Understanding flooded him, flooded him. Relief did too, so powerful that it almost made him cry, right there in the headmistress's office. He was going to be punished. It was finally going to happen. Everything was going to make sense again. She was going to exclude him. Punishment was coming. Thank God, thank God. But how could I do that, the headmistress said. Connor froze. How could I do that and still call myself a teacher, she said, with all that you're going through? She frowned. It took Connor a moment to realise that it was over, that this was it. This was all he was going to get. 
You're not punishing me, he said. The headmistress gave a grim smile, almost kind, and then she said almost exactly the same thing his father had said. What purpose could that possibly serve? So the thing that's going on in this sequence, and the engine that's powering the entirety of Ness's book, is grief. And specifically, the rehearsal and the acceptance of grief prior to the death of a loved one. Now, Connor knows that his mother is dying, that she's going to die, but he cannot accept it. Over the course of the book, he um, he's presented with uh, false hopes. His mother's going to go on some new medication. They're going to increase her dosage, all that kind of stuff. And uh, or the, the the monster will save her. That's another one, because the monster's a yew tree, and they talk about the healing properties of yew trees. But he knows that that's not going to work. And the truth... That, and I did mention that this episode was replete with spoilers. I mean, I've already spoiled so much of the book, so I hope that people are listening have not read the bloody book or seen the film. But the truth that, that Connor has been fighting against and the nightmare that he keeps having is that his mother is, is falling and he's holding onto her hand, but that he wants to let go, that he wants it to be over, that it's been too protracted, that it's been too painful, that the process of watching his mother die is too difficult for him to deal with and he can't rationalize that he cannot understand that that is not some kind of ultimate evil he feels that he should be punished so this is kind of where we get the confusion and anger that drives uh the the, the narrative and in many ways it's suggested that the monster is a manifestation of this confusion and anger but at the same time the monster serves a kind of paternal role a role that is not being filled by his own father or his grandmother or anybody in his life because he's shutting them out. He's closing them. He's putting down barriers and he's trying to deal with everything on his own, but he can't. So he calls a monster. His confusion and the, 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 the state that he's in, of course, also is coupled with him being on the cusp of adolescence and the destruction of all points of reference that is uh, constituted by grief serves as a kind of extended metaphor for entering the adult world. Suddenly, none of the grown-ups around him have any answers, and he realises that it's because they are suffering something similar to him, and therefore they cannot answer it for themselves. How could they possibly answer it for him? And the idea of suffering is explored in the passage that I just read through the absence of punishment. Um, and so punishment, on the one hand, serves as a kind of a desired a desire for structure. You know, if I misbehave, then I get punished. Therefore, the world makes sense again. And if I can do that, if I can make the world make sense again, maybe I won't lose my mother. It's a very um, destructive train of thought, but you can see how it operates, and it, and I think, is handled beautifully. So there's, on the one hand, the punishment is, is a desire for structure, but on the other hand, of course, it's a desire, a masochistic desire, uh, to be punished for the thing that he feels he's doing wrong. I deserve to be punished because I am rehearsing and because I am in some ways willing the death of my loved one, because the pain that I feel is too much to bear. And this, I'll, so I'll come back to this in a moment. What I want to do now is, is just return to Derrida and the idea of loss and what it is that Connor is trying to face in this story, what, what the thing is that he's fighting. So what, what happens when we lose a loved one? What, what do we fear losing? And why, what is it that we never recover? So, um, Again, this is Derrida talking about Louis Althusser. Um, he says, A whole part of my life, a long, rich and intense stretch of my living self has been interrupted today, comes to an end and thus dies with Louis in order to continue to accompany him as in the past 
but this time without return and into the depths of absolute darkness. What is coming to an end, what Louis is taking away with him, is not only something or other that we would have shared at some point or another, but the world itself, a certain origin of the world, his origin, no doubt, but also that of the world in which I lived, in which we lived a unique story. It is a world that is for us the whole world, the only world, and it sinks into an abyss from which no memory, even if we keep the memory, and we will keep it, can save it. Like Ness, Derrida doesn't pull his punches. A death constitutes the end of the world, or a world, and it's no less important for its smallness and its exclusivity. In fact, if anything, it's more important. We die with the loved one, because there is a part of us that only they are capable of bringing into existence. With their departure, that part of us can no longer emerge, and is accessible only by memory, and that's a terribly strange thing to have to understand, that there is this part of you that is now no longer accessible to you. And from that, of course, there is the anxiety of realising that there are so many parts of you that are accessible to you only in as much as the people in your life exist, that they can call into being. And once they die, they're just memories, or they are... Mm, they're only memories. Memory becomes part of the work of mourning. But by being recalled in memory, there is another problem, because the other, and the lost part of the self, become more and more textualised. They become placed in the context of other memories, and they are eventually circumscribed within a series of historical narratives. They become stories. We lose them, and we lose them again. We've already lost them once when they die, and then we lose them again because we realise that they've become something other than what they were, which is a definable, comprehensible story. And this is something that I felt when I was grieving um, for a long time. Uh, this this resistance to the textualizing of the memories of the loved one. I wanted to keep the wounds open so that the loved one could not be safely encompassed in a relatable series of events, could not be understood. Because it's a barbaric thing to presume to understand a person in their totality. None of us are understandable in, in totality in life. Why on earth would that change in death? And, of course, it doesn't. But... Although we can never understand the totality of a person once they've died, we can also no longer access them. So we can no longer um, test, explore, prove the impossibility of knowing them in their entire being. That is now lost to us. And ultimately it's impossible to prevent this loss, this circumscription of the other into memory. And I think for me that also is an important function of works of mourning, in the sense of artworks, because works of mourning offer a meaning to try to safeguard the singularity of the other, whilst at the same time allowing them to be taken into memory. Alright, so that was a dense set of arguments, and I think there's a couple of things that I need to unpack. One of them is, I just mentioned, the, the singularity of death, um, and the other one is the function of the work of mourning. Now, the singularity of the work of death is or the singularity of death, rather, is something with which we are familiar, because it's the only way that we can access our private grief. When a life ends, if the person had many friends or lovers or many worlds or whatever, then the people uh, which inhabited those are brought to an end. We may collectively mourn, but in the end it is our interior that is shattered by death, and it must be approached in the work of mourning. So you can't speak to a collective, you can only speak to a group of singularities, or try to speak to a group of singularities. And this is something that it took me a long time to understand. Eventually, um, I, I sort of realised it when I was watching an episode of Jimmy McGovern's Cracker, of all things. Uh, and it was about a year after my granny died. And there was an episode of Cracker where um, Fitz, the main character, is sitting crying in his front room because his, his uh, parent, one of his parents had just died. And he's talking to his wife and he says, Grief's delicious. 
life's boring and banal, and then a parent dies, and suddenly there's an emotion, genuine emotion, and you savour it because it's delicious. And something about that speech, which I've committed to memory, um, explained the selfishness of grief to me. I hadn't really understood that grief was selfish. I'd sort of thought that it was supposed to be collective, shared, and I couldn't understand why I couldn't share it. But then this person, this you know, this writer who'd written this TV series and then this actor who was performing it spoke to me without knowing that they were speaking to me, but provided a space in which I could understand and rationalise and begin to come to terms with the, the nature of my own grief. Um, because I think there's something about grief that is selfish, that has to be selfish. And thinking about that, there is something really paradoxical about Derrida's need to articulate publicly the conditions of his grief, or at least part of his grief. And he, of course, he's well aware of this paradox. And he returns to it obsessively. when he's, He writes about the, uh, a piece called The Deaths of Roland Barthes after Barthes died. And he says, For him I would have wanted to avoid and thus spare him the double wound of speaking of him here and now as one speaks of one of the living or one of the dead. In both cases I disfigure, I wound, I put to sleep or I kill. To speak of the dead um, in mourning constitutes a betrayal of the loved one. But, as we've said, the alternative is worse. Silence is worse. Um, we are compelled to speak. And Derrida goes further, in fact, when he's talking about the death of Jean-François Lyotard, the guy who wrote The Postmodern Condition. Um, after Lyotard died, he wrote uh, another piece, and in this passage, he thinks about the textuality of his own words of mourning, and he says, Readability bears this mourning. A phrase can be readable. It must be able to become readable, up to a certain point, without the reader, he or she, or any other place of reading, occupying the ultimate position of addressee. This morning provides the first chance and terrible condition of all reading. Now this is a favourite theme of Derrida's throughout his entire work. What constitutes reading? What does the presumption of reading and the presumption of the reader do to the text itself? If somebody I love dies, and my love for them is singular, as in it cannot be copied, it cannot be, un it doesn't exist anywhere else, it exists only in this place for, the, the, for me and the person that I love, um, because no love is ever the same, no death is ever the same, then surely the words that I speak of that love must operate only for the person to whom they are addressed, and of the person to whom they are addressed, and in the moment that they are spoken. Anything else would be a betrayal. But that's not the way that language works. And aside from everything else, the fact that I've repeatedly demonstrated this, this function in this podcast by quoting Derrida, by quoting his words of mourning, and using them for my own purposes. So we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that our words of mourning will always function and move in ways that exceed the singularity of our relationship with the dead. Derrida knows this, and again, often makes a point of quoting the words of the person who has died, partly to try to attain some sort of ghost or present or echo of the other in his work, but also, I think, to remind us, and himself, that a singularity of feeling is determined as much by the reader or the listener as it is by the person who writes. Again, if you think of the, the episode of Cracker and somebody sat at a typewriter or whatever writing this episode of this TV series, they had no idea that eventually, many, many years later, when it was repeated on television, it would strike a chord with some 27-year-old PhD student who had not being able to come to terms with his own grief, but suddenly through these words that were being spoken, found that he could articulate and make sense of something that had been plaguing him. And, you know, we all get this. How many of us, we've all, I'm assuming everyone listening to this has personal connections with songs that have been written and performed by people that they've never met. 
it's a simple point, um, of course, but it, it I think is a necessary one, and it gets me into the final preoccupation of this episode, which is, what is the function of a work of mourning? Now, this is one of the many reasons I wanted to talk about a monster calls, and I realise I haven't really talked about it much in this episode. Um, I suppose, in as much as the episode can be seen to do anything, maybe what I'm hoping to do is to offer some thoughts that might lend some perspective to the uh, the book and the film. But I want to just wrap up by talking more directly about The Monster Calls for a couple of minutes. Um, particularly A Monster Calls as a book and as a film, because they're, they're both very different mediums. They work in very different ways upon the reader and upon the viewer. And, of course, as well, they also uh, work in different ways upon memory and imagination and so on. But I think just in terms of the way in which they function as works of mourning, I found really quite fascinating and powerful. Um, now, I haven't talked about the film at all, and that's not an accident, because I find it easier to talk about the book, because I had a personal, individual, and selfish response to the book. I read it on my own, in, I don't know where I was, probably a house or a cafe or whatever, whatever it was. I was secluded within my own world, and thus I could explore the selfishness of my own grief through that book, and see in the book reflected elements of my angry nine-year-old self and... and the way that I feel, felt um, and still feel having lost my grandmother, to whom I was extremely close. Um, so there is a personal relationship with the book that doesn't need to be shared or explained or accounted for. But the film isn't the same. Now, you can watch films on your own, but I didn't. I watched this film in the Cameo Cinema in Edinburgh with two friends and a cinema full of people. And by the end of the film... It felt like the entire cinema was crying. I was in floods of tears. The people that I was with, my two friends, had been hugging each other for a large part of the film. And you could hear crying from all over the place. And I've never had an experience like that in a cinema. Maybe I've just been looking at the, watching the wrong films. But it was, I think, kind of how I, I imagine sort of Greek tragedy would have been like watching it two and a half thousand years ago. And... I did find myself throughout the film kind of thinking about my relationship to the film and what the film was doing, but also thinking about my relationship to the people that I was sitting next to and wondering about them and wondering why they were crying. Were they crying because they were accessing points of grief that they had experienced or were they imagining grief that was to come or were they just responding with compassion to the story that was being presented in front of them? And by doing this, I felt... And saying a connection would probably sound a bit too wishy-washy, but it felt like there was a way in which the film was provoking me to think compassionately about the people around me, which I think is a, an extraordinarily important and often very under-used uh, function of a work of art, and particularly a work of mourning. Now, the film is manipulative, of course it's manipulative, and in some ways it would be psychopathic if it was not, if it did not try to manipulate the audience in some ways, given that it is dealing with a, a, a boy who is um, in the process of grieving. But for me, the manipulative nature of the film, you know, the occasionally schmaltzy music, um, the slightly affected um, register of some of the actors and so on, and, you know, the, the iconographies of death, um, and, a, and a final sequence that is a little bit heavy-handed. I think, nevertheless, these all were working to amplify the central concerns of the film, which is the impossibility of grief and trying to rationalise grief. Um, and sharing grief as well. Now, I tend to think of theatre as as, uh, as the, the more effective medium, shall we say, in, in terms of uh, creating or providing the space for a collective experience, because theatre audiences 
you know, you're in a, a place in which something is being made in front of you and for you and with you. Whereas with cinema, you're in a place in which something is being presented to you that's been made somewhere else and it, it doesn't quite have the same, um, uh, I'll use the word again because I've used it a lot, singularity. But this film, perhaps simply because it elicited tangible responses from its audience and then forced me to reflect upon those responses, I think this film challenged that thought. And that's why I felt comfortable talking about it on this podcast, because for me, this film operated in the way in which uh, I think really good theatre can. Now, after we'd seen the film, uh, my friends and I went and sat in the bar for about an hour and we talked around the film rather than about it. And I suppose that was understandable, too, because there's this danger of trampling somebody else's memories if, if you offer direct criticism or analysis, because what we'd been watching was not just the film. It was our own fears and our own pain, too. And I still can't think about the film or the book. I mean, reading the book, just preparing for this podcast, I ended up in tears several times again. Um, it kicks at your insides, or it kicks at mine at least. And of course, that's testament to the skill of the various artists involved in its construction, but also, I think, to the effectiveness of A Monster Calls as a work of mourning. I'm going to finish this episode in the way that Derrida finishes many of his texts, with a quote. Afterwards, I will um, play Polly's song, and... Uh, I'm not sure when the next episode will be, but you know there will be another episode at some point. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, the following quote is taken just before the end of the book, A Monster Calls. He knew that there was no going back, that it was going to happen, whatever he wanted, whatever he felt. He also knew that he was going to get through it. It would be terrible. It would be beyond terrible. But he'd survive. And it was for this that the monster came. It must have been. Connor had needed it, and his need had somehow called it. And it had come walking, just for this moment. So a flag on your back and go dream of the seas. Find out you're not quite that easy to please. Be slave to the tracks, be king for a day. Do you realize kings do have? Price they can't pay.